Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. This is Sheila Murthy president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm honored to have with me as co-panelists, Pam Janice, an attorney who has been at the firm for over eight years, has over a dozen, almost a dozen years of immigration law experience based in our Seattle, Washington, West Coast office, and supervises the green card slash perm slash immigrant division team. Along with Pam and myself, we have James McLaughlin, more commonly known as Jim, uh, who is also an attorney with several years of experience, both at the Murthy Law Firm and before the Murthy Law Firm. So as you can see, you have an awesome panel that's going to have a discussion today on the topic of I-140 immigrant petitions filed by employers on behalf of foreign national employees that you as employers are sponsoring for permanent residence and the trends that we're noticing. So as I just said, the purpose of the I-140 immigrant petition is to provide the employees, uh, your employees, to confirm that they actually meet or satisfy the legal requirements that are set forth in the PERM labor certification application, wherever it's applicable, and there may be cases where it may or may not apply, um, to also establish that you as employers are in fact bona fide employers that can meet the ability to pay test in the PERM labor certification context. And the third purpose of the I-140 petition is to establish the beneficiary's intent to immigrate to the U.S. along with all dependent family members. So with that quick broad overview, let me have Jim plunge right in to talk, to go over a little bit more of the background in terms of what does one file as the employer with the I-140 and who can file it and what the process involves. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Sheila. You know, at first glance, except for a few exceptions, such as like EB1s or NIWs, the I-140 may seem fairly simple. And as I go through sort of the, the basic list is what should be included in that petition, um, keep in mind it, there's more involved than just what's listed here. So obviously at first you want the I-140 petition. There's the current filing fee, which is $580. You'll need to include the original labor certification if uh, labor is required for that type of filing. Um, needs to be original and signed. Um, the I-140 petition sh should also include a letter from the employer discussing the company's background, explaining the job, and how the beneficiary qualifies for the position. Um, you should also include supporting evidence, such as the how the beneficiary um, qualifies for the position. Generally speaking, it's education documentation, experience documentation. And you also need to include the company's financial documentation, showing that you can prove the ability to pay, which we'll go into a little more uh, detail later. Who can file this? It depends on the type of petition. Generally speaking, it's a U.S. employer. Um, in some petitions, the foreign national can also self-petition, such as the EB-1 extraordinary ability petition, as well as a national interest waiver. Uh, the processing time right now is pretty long. You're looking at between 9 and 12 months for regular processing. Uh, you can premium process, however, 
for an extra fee of 1225 um, by filing the Form 907. Uh, that'll be adjudicated within 15 calendar days, um, you know, but that also includes an RFE. So if there's an RFE, it restarts the clock. Generally speaking, we see once you've responded to the RFE, the, uh, it's being a, the RFE response be adjudicated within 15 calendar days as well. Um, Sheila, this is an actually a good opportunity to mention the fact that this is one of those areas where it's important to be aware of recent trends because the USCIS recently changed the filing location for some premium processing cases in order to balance workload between the Nebraska Service Center and Texas Service Center. So some cases that in the past would be filed at Texas have now been moved to Nebraska. So it's one of those instances where you want to be careful not to get complacent and always keep up to date on the latest trends with USCIS because if you miss this, you send it to the wrong location. That's right. And it's as small as I believe just four states, Pam. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for pitching in and uh, completing that. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Pam. So should we now jump to the next topic or the next sub-issue under immigrant petitions where we really in-depth look at the issue of, I guess, to start off, the overview of the education and experience, what kind of evidence that needs to be submitted, as well as for ability to pay related issues. Sure, Sheila. So uh, as uh, as you and Jim just said, you know, it's important to show the the person, the individual, the foreign national meets the requirements of the labor certification at the time that the labor certification was filed in terms of do they have the required minimum education and experience. With the education, you need to provide copies of the relevant degrees and transcripts. For foreign education, you want to include a credential evaluation, and it's important to use a credential evaluation that USCIS is going to be accepting, and I think we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, also, for U.S. education, you want to make sure that it's from an accredited institution. And there are some institutions that have gained and lost and regained accreditation. So it's important to check that accreditation status. And if necessary, you may want to include, include proof of that as a upfront with your filing. Uh, and then the other primary issue is the experience. Uh, you want to make sure that to include proof up front with the filing that the person has the required experience that's listed on the labor certification and that the documentation that you provide meets the USCIS criteria. As far as uh, the employer side, they're primarily demonstrating that they have had the continuing ability to pay at least the offered wage from the time of filing the labor certification up to the present and potentially beyond. And the USCIS, they will look at the primary evidence, which is the employer's tax returns or audited financial statements or annual report, and they'll look at specifically the net income and or net current, I'm sorry, not and or, <laughs> or net current assets in order to determine whether the employer has that ability to pay. Now, if the, if the employer is paying the person the offered wage at least, then that can, the, that can cover the, the, the evidence. Uh, it's only if the employer is not currently paying them that wage that they need to show the ability to cover the difference. 
Uh, in, in addition, sorry, mm-hmm. I just need to throw this out there. If the company has more than 100 employees, then they can include a letter from a financial officer of the company confirming their ability to pay. But even with that letter, a lot of times USCIS will still want to see that primary financial evidence, tax return, audited financial statement, annual report. Okay, thank you, Pam. And what about if there's additional secondary evidence like bank statements or profit and loss statements, personnel records? Will those be ever sufficient? I wouldn't know that I would, I wouldn't say go so far as to say sufficient. I would say that there are circumstances where that is warranted. For example, if the company's most recent tax returns haven't been filed yet, you can supplement that with evidence that it's not currently available and here's this alternate evidence. But generally, USCIS wants to receive that primary evidence. You need a good reason why it's not available. Good point. That's correct. Okay, so now let's jump to the recent trends that we've been noticing, particularly with the issue of ability to pay. And so if I can have you, Jim, jump into that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the biggest RFEs we're seeing um, in the past few months with USCIS on these I-140s is ability to pay, and specifically ability to pay everyone when you file for multiple beneficiaries. Um, Back in in May of this year, uh, USCIS proposed an I-140 template. Um, it's not implemented yet, but it's a really good guideline as to uh, a reference for when you're preparing your I-140, what you can include uh, to help avoid an RFE. In that RFE template, they talk about sole proprietorships, um, individual employers and partnerships. For example, in those situations, if you're using the income of those owners, uh, they're going to want to see the household living expenses of the owner. Um, if you're using wages paid by another business, they're going to want to see uh, the relationship between the two businesses. Uh, they'll also look at the totality of the circumstances. Say you had a down year, but your prior years, uh, you could show that you would have had ability to pay then. They're going to want to look at all the documentation that supports that. Um, also, they list off discretionary officer compensation. They're going to want statements from the officer saying that, yes, they would um, forego their income to help uh, pay any wage obligation. Um, and they're going to want evidence of that compensation of the officer. Or if you're making the argument that this uh, beneficiary is replacing um, an individual or outsourced service, they're going to want to see evidence of the money um, that that was paid for those services or that prior uh, employee, as well as the duties. These are actually really interesting arguments that you know we've been using for years in addressing problematic uh, ability to pay cases that have come to the firm. And it's really interesting to see how USCIS is, they've been hearing these arguments and they're incorporating it into what, or they're potentially incorporating it into what kind of evidence they're looking for in these, you know, uh, RFE, these ability to pay cases, they're borderline. You know, what Jim is talking about is situations where maybe the net income or the net current assets are not the best indicator of the company's financial health. There may be reasons why their net income or net current assets are lower in one particular year. And since the the standard of proof for these cases is the preponderance of the evidence. All you have to do is show that it's more likely than not that the employer could have paid the offered wage if they had to. And so all these arguments that Jim is talking about, it's really exciting to see how USCIS is finally getting open to the idea of accepting it. Um, I know that it's the rule says preponderance of the evidence, but from looking at some of the RFEs, 
it does it sounds like they want clear and convincing evidence or beyond a reasonable doubt which is well beyond the legal standard required in a s- civil case like this right. right so i mean you want ideally for the employer to be prepared up front to plan ahead at the labor certification stage for what this um, i140 is going to need to show make sure that their tax returns and the w2s are going to support that but if you get into a circumstance that wasn't anticipated it's great to know that these arguments exist right not only i don't mean to toot our own horn but we're really excited like pam said because a lot of these arguments are ones we've been making We've for been years making it and for years, years and years. And you know and what? Finally it's okay supported. to toot our horn if it's validly justified. <laughs> and it's also equally important to be humble if there, if there is need to be that. And thank goodness that finally the government is looking at these arguments made by very experienced and creative lawyers over the years to explain why, you know, certain... Um, in certain situations, the ability to pay standard has not been satisfied. I was getting a little excited. So if you hear a tapping at the back, it was because <laughs> I was getting so excited about making the government's position. But it's also important for us to be able to prove as employers, for you all as employers, uh, as petitioners, to prove the employee's uh, ability to pay from the date that the priority date is established, which means that the date the perm application was filed or in the case of NIW or Extraordinary Ability, National Interest Waiver Self-Petition, from the day that the I-140 petition is filed, which is the date of the establishment of the priority date, until the person, the employee or the beneficiary, actually becomes a permanent resident or green card holder. Most often, the USCIS doesn't ask for proof after the I-140 is approved, but occasionally at the 485 stage, we've seen where an RFE may have been issued saying, hey, What's the story? Show us still the proof. That's Not right. often, often asked, but by that's what the law requires. I know there are a lot of other issues, Jim, and it looks like you're dying to say something. <laughs> I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, it, it, keep in mind that although at the I-140 you have to prove the ability to pay, if there's been an audit in the labor, it may be two years from the actual initiation of that priority date. So it's important to keep this in mind. But something else we're seeing, like I mentioned a little earlier, is the ability to pay everyone RFEs. If you file for multiple uh, beneficiaries, your ability to pay can become cumulative. Um, the RFE template you know, that uh, was issued back in May that hopefully they're going to implement does say that if you're paying the employee the uh, actual proffered wage or more, then they shouldn't be issuing these. But, you know, it remains to be seen. Um, so you need to keep it in mind. If you're not employing the employee or you're not paying the proffered wage, this ability to pay everybody RFE can, and there's a good chance if you file a lot, will eventually be issued. Um, so it's a good practice tip to keep in uh, keep track of your beneficiaries and all your filings um, for the years until they get their green card. Uh, keep, in tra- keep track of what the proffered wage is, what you're currently paying them, and make sure your finances, like Pam said, either net income or net current assets, covers whatever gap. And it's a cumulative gap. Yeah, so if you have one person who only has a $10,000 difference, that's not a big deal. But if you have 10 people who all have a $10,000 difference, right there you need to come up with hundred k in net income or net current asset for each year that it's affected. And just like, you know, you should be keeping track of all of the cases that you're filing, USCIS is keeping track of this. And we've actually seen some recent RFEs from the Administrative Appeals Office saying we've seen these 10 cases and identifying specific petitions that you have filed 
please show us that you have the ability to pay all 10 of these. So, you know, it's very important to So it's mostly net entire. operating income, not really net net in the sense it's more net operating. It's the EBITDA what they call earnings before income tax, depreciation, amortization. It's the U.S., specifically USCIS is looking for uh, net income before um, uh, net operating loss, Just right. before that deduction. So but it's other net than operating that, income, net operating income. Right. Okay, good, good. And also I know that there's been talk about potentially withdrawing the I-140 petition to that, deal with it. And sometimes we recommend that for especially small, mid-sized companies that need to, to comply with the ability to mm -hmm. pay. Larger employers tend not to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's always tricky because the employee could end up getting their 485s denied if they've already filed it. It's kind of, you kind of get into this weird place because you as an employer may want to help the employee and not withdraw the I-140 petition um, to so that the employee's I-485 for them and their family can continue. But a lot of times if you're a small company and that's going to impact your ability to pay to sponsor future employees, that could be a potential problem. So sometimes you have to do that. And as long as you explain and the employee understands that that's a risk that they're taking when they change jobs, then hopefully everyone's in a good place because it can be very upsetting because a lot of the companies tell their, the larger companies say we our policy is not to revoke or withdraw the I-140, but the smaller and mid-sized companies have no choice. And it's unlike the H-1B where it's mandatory to revoke the H uh, the H-1 petition uh, in the I-1, in the large. Yeah, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it is optional whether they can withdraw the I-140. And there are a lot of companies that may have a future job available. And so they want to keep the ability to file it in the future. But, you know, it's important that any 485 that is filed has to be based on a valid job offer. Either the employer is offering that future position or the person is currently working and they're continuing. If that future job no longer exists, that person probably shouldn't be filing that 485. But, you know, it's always a question whether the employer wants to withdraw the I-140. And so it's a good idea for them to talk with their attorney um, anytime an employee is, is leaving or changing jobs about what the potential impacts are, the, specifically that you've just, you know, mentioned. Um, there may be reasons why they want to keep it if they have a job offer that is still valid. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so then we have um, the next issue is the educational equivalency. So educational equivalency, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm the only person um, who does. Um, it is an extremely frustrating area because, um, you know, the USCIS approach to educational equivalency has evolved over time. And so, again, it's very important to keep up to date on what USCIS is accepting. Um, for USCIS frequently issues RFEs when the U.S. equivalency of the foreign degree is not clear in the initial evidence, or if the evaluation that is provided is contradictory to what USCIS um, is expecting. Uh, you know, every country has different degree programs, different amounts of education is required for, you know, specific levels of education, and some things may not be equivalent to a U.S. degree. Um, for example, a three-year bachelor's degree from the United Kingdom is considered equivalent to a U.S. bachelor's degree generally, whereas a three-year bachelor's degree from India is not considered equivalent to a U.S. bachelor's degree. Is so there a reason that they've given for this? It's based on the amount of education that is a prerequisite for entry into that 
So in the UK, program. do they have 13 years it's of 13 school? 13 years normally. Okay. So mm-hmm. um, generally when when USCIS is looking at education, what they do is they compare it against the standards that are set forth in the ACRO-EDGE database. That is essentially the holy book of educational equivalencies for the USCIS. And so that's one of the things that we always do is we check a credential evaluation against what is in EDGE because if USCIS is not going to accept it, then you know there's no point in filing a case that's going to be denied. Um, so it's always a good idea to obtain a credential evaluation from a reputable evaluator who normally uses the ACRO-EDGE database in their evaluation. And um, the generally, there's actually case law that supports USCIS in their reliance on the ACRO-EDGE database, frustrating though it may be. So Even though it's is, not completely controlling, they do give it a lot of weight. Yeah, so this, mm-hmm. is, this is basically, you, you know, like it or like it or hate it, um, that is that is what USCIS is using, and so it's important to be prepared for that. And like I said, the other thing is to be aware of the issue of accreditation. Different countries have different standards of accreditation. Um, if there is accreditation in that country, USCIS wants um, the educational credential to be issued by a university that is accredited. So it's important to know what the rules are for that country. And if there is an accrediting body that the the institution in question is accredited. And uh, for U.S. education, again, you want to make sure that the university was accredited at the time that the credential was issued. Okay. You also want to use an attorney who's very familiar with issues such as this, such as Pam, such as the Murphy Law Firm, because even with ACRO, we've seen USCIS come back and say, we know ACRO says this, but we disagree, and this is why. And so you want your attorney to be aware of these issues ahead of yeah. time. Right. Well, considering only the tens of thousands of cases that we do from <laughs> around the world with <laughs> India being, because majority of the, I guess, a lot of the people coming on H-1Bs and in the skilled occupations, especially in the technology and connected fields, or generally, it's just been that we really at the Murthy Law Firm have this in-depth, detailed knowledge about educational equivalencies, um, including from the University Grants Commission of the Government of India and other countries' bodies, including the United Kingdom and Germany, where they have the 13-year undergraduate degree. So just because of the depth and the knowledge and the variety and the width of the cases that we do, that we process here, our level of knowledge is far wider and deeper than majority of the law firms Uh, doing U.S. immigration law on this issue. Okay, so let's jump from education, the ACRO and all of that, to the experience evidence, which, for example, when we try to do an EB2 case, we say BS plus 5 or MS plus 3. So the 3 or the 5, the the experience uh, evidence, and the best evidence usually is in the form of a letter from a prior employer on the employer's letterhead, the company letterhead, which should include details like the company's address, the phone number, the email, um, whatever, you know, hopefully in colored font if it's an original letterhead, signed by an authorized representative who is allowed to sign on behalf of the employer or company stating the employee's full name, the date of employment, the job title and the job duties, etc. What are the other kinds of evidence that can be acceptable if a person cannot get the let, the evidence from the prior employer, Jim? Now, uh, 
often um, our beneficiaries have a hard time getting the experience documentation that includes all of that list that you just said, Sheila. Um, so they have to look at secondary uh, documentation. One of the, the main uh, documents for secondary documentation is coworker affidavits. Um, generally speaking, you want that coworker affidavit to include the dates of employment, the job duties, uh, the title, and also mention how the the affiant is familiar with the beneficiary of the petition. Um, two colleague affidavits is generally recommended, and a self affidavit explaining why you were not able to get the primary evidence, such as the experience letter. And we've actually seen some RFEs from USCIS where that that personal statement isn't enough, where they want proof that the individual tried to get that evidence. Uh, for example, they sent emails that were unre- unresponded to or an email back that said, no, we don't give it in that format. Or uh, if the company has gone out of business, uh, letters that were sent and returned as undeliverable, um, things like that. So it's it's important to have that self-statement sta- saying, you know, I tried, but I couldn't get it. But be prepared for USCIS to, to say, show us that you did try. Okay. So what is this that we keep hearing about RFEs issued on the I, I, topic of Vibe? What exactly is Vibe, Pam? Uh, Vibe is a database, basically, and they use it to, uh, it's maintained by Dun & Bradstate to kind of employer information, and USCIS can access it to kind of check some important details, the location of the employer, the number of employees, to make sure that it is a bona fide job offer. And the Vibe RFEs, they they come and go, <laughs> um, but they're not gone. We do still occasionally see a Vibe RFE asking, um, you know, verification of the details of the company operations, where they are located, the date it was established, the number of employees. Um, you know, some employers, uh, their number of employees can vary from day to day. But if the USCIS sees a significant difference between, say, the number of employees listed on the labor certification and the number of employees listed on the I-140 and the number of uh, employees listed in the VIBE database, then they're going to have a question. And they'll most likely ask for evidence supporting the, the, that information, you know, provide quarterly reports uh, demonstrating that, you know, you do have this number of employees, provide a copy of your articles of incorporation, a business license, tax return etc. to prove the location and existence. Um, if for some reason employer does receive a VIBE RFE, uh, that's a good opportunity to actually contact uh, Dun & Broadstreet to, to verify the information that they have and request them to correct it to hopefully avoid that in the future. Um, another RFE that is, it comes and goes, uh, much like the VIBE one, is occasionally we see Uh, what we refer to as employer-employee control RFEs, similar to the ones that are sometimes issued by uh, H-1Bs. It's important to make sure that, you know, even in the green card context, that you as the employer are supervising, monitoring, or otherwise controlling the the work of the employee, even if they are working at a client site. You know, essentially it goes back to H-1B basics. You know, make sure that you have the right uh, H-1B approval notice, that the person, you have the LCA for the location where they are, that all the contracts, et cetera, are uh, in place and up to date. And if necessary, amendments have been filed. You know, the employer's, the employer's monitoring and maintenance of the documents for an H-1B doesn't stop with the approval. 
Yeah, that makes lots of sense. And just jumping back to an issue from before, when we talked about the secondary evidence and employer letters, if the employer, and it kind of ties in with this whole issue of fraud investigation, if the employee has worked for a prior employer that is being subject to investigation by the USCIS or the Department of Labor or the Fraud Detection and National Security, then the USCIS will most likely want other kinds of secondary evidence in addition to the prior employer's letter on letterhead uh, or coworker affidavit since that prior employer is not considered as trustworthy or reliable as far as the USCIS is concerned in being able to approve the I-140. So I know that we try to keep these teleconferences between 30 and 40 minutes because we're sensitive to you as busy HR managers and busy company owners, presidents, immigration specialists, et cetera. So uh, what I want to do is ask Jim or Pam if there's any last minute thoughts that they have. Uh, yeah. Make sure the attorney that you're using knows what they're doing. <laughs> I use the multi law firm. Good, you stole my thunder, Jim. But uh, you know, obviously, it's extremely important for you as employers to understand the process. I always say, knowledge is power, and the more knowledge you have, the more powerful you can be and are in being able to ask your law firm or lawyer or your company in-house person to understand or look at the issues or you yourself, if you're that person, to understand what are these issues, what's going on and how to make it work. So on behalf of Pam Janice, Jim McLaughlin, myself, Sheila Murthy, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for participating and attending today's teleconference. And we look forward to continuing to take great care of you your company, and your employees on I-140 immigrant petitions, labor certifications, H-1Bs, or L-1s, or anything else that you may need in the world of immigration. As our slogan says at the Murthy Law Firm, we know your immigration matters. Thank you.